uh, Dr. Erwin Goldstein, and thank you very much. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you to the AUA Office of Education. This is an amazing honor. As I've always said at these meetings, uh, the AUA is the largest medical society that honors women's sexual health with instructional courses. It is the only <laughs> large uh, uh, medical organization to do so. Uh, um, uh, in gynecology and primary care, there are no instructional courses on this. So it is a true honor uh, to do this. We have an amazing, amazing faculty. Uh, Dr. Noel Kim is CSO at the Institute for Sexual Medicine. He's a current president of ISWISH, International Society for Study of Women's Sexual Health. Dr. Rachel Ruman is a urologist and sexual medicine specialist uh, in Washington, D.C. She's also assistant clinical professor in urology at Georgetown University and a clinical instructor in urology at George Washington University in Washington. Dr. Winter Ashley Winter is a urologist and sexual medicine specialist in uh, Portland in, uh, at the Department of Urology in uh, um, uh, Northwest Permanente, and uh, I am in San Diego. So I'm going to advance this if it worked. Let's see. All right, so the next slide should be, if I can do that. <laughs> There we go, is the housekeeping slide. So we have 90 minutes, everybody, from 7 to 8.30. We're going to dedicate uh, uh, 15 minutes to questions and answers. We genuinely only have 75 minutes. Uh, Dr. Kim is going to do a 15-minute presentation. Dr. Rubin is going to do 20 minutes of presentation. Dr. Winter, 20, uh, 12 minutes, and I'm going to do 23 minutes, and we are going to finish on time. And we're going to walk you through the, the sort of... Uh, guts of women's sexual health. It's really a mousse-bouche. It's, it's just like a taste. Uh, uh, Sarah at the beginning said she wanted a fun and enlightening event, and we're going to provide you with that. Uh, the next slide is really uh, the issue of what we're trying to achieve here. Dr. Gim Kim is going to take you through the basic science principles. Uh, Dr. Rubin's going to do the H and P for the woman. Uh, the three clinicians, uh, Dr. Ruben, uh, Winter, and myself, will do the consensus paradigms that have been developed through a the large uh, uh, society called International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, uh, where the three clinicians will also get you through FDA-approved therapies and off-label medical therapies. And I'm going to take you through surgical uh, treatments. Uh, the final slide is uh, just uh, for those who are really interested in this, uh, um, um, while the faculty are all AUA members, the faculty are also ISWISH members, this is sort of the premier society for women's sexual health. Uh, we provide opportunities for communication among scholars. We have ethics and professionalism at the highest standards for research, education, and clinical practice, and we provide the public with accurate information. The textbook on the right uh, was available since 2018. It's very up to date. Our previous textbook was in 2004, and we're so happy to have the latest textbook. With that, I'm going to pass you to Dr. Kim. Dr. Kim, uh, please uh, do your thing on androgens and sexual health in women. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Goldstein. Uh, because our time is so brief, I'm going to focus my presentation on androgens and sexual health in women. In looking through this list of target organs and androgen action, you would generally affirm that androgens have diverse and beneficial effects in the body. 
groups. And especially for the urologist, you're very familiar with the effects of androgens in the CNS and in genital tissues regulating sexual function in men. Yet often there's a disconnect with regard to the effects of androgens in women. But of course, the same effects of androgens in the CNS and in genital tissues holds true for women as well. If we examine circulating androgens in premenopausal women, you'll note that the adrenal glands contribute the same amount of androsine diode and testosterone as the ovaries. In addition, the adrenals produce almost all of the circulating DHEA. Both the ovaries and adrenal glands have a full complement of enzymes to synthesize androgens from cholesterol. It's also important to note that many peripheral tissues express enzymes that can synthesize testosterone and DHT after uptake of circulating DHEA. So women synthesize significant amounts of androgens in their ovaries, adrenals, and peripheral tissues. But why is this significant? To answer that, we have to go back to some basic developmental biology. The female genital tract develops primarily from two different layers. The mesodermal layer in the form of the paramesonephric duct that gives rise to the fallopian tubes, the uterus, and proximal vagina. And the endodermal layer in the form of the urogenital sinus that gives rise to the distal vagina, the vestibule, and associated glands. The labia minora and vestibule comprise the junction between ectoderm and endoderm, morphologically denoted by Hart's line, the transition from keratinized to non-keratinized epithelium. The vestibule also denotes the transition to increased androgen receptor expression in the external genitalia of adults. In fact, while absolute levels may differ, the distribution pattern of androgen receptors is identical in homologous tissues of women and men. Interestingly, estrogen receptors elevated in females, but not in males. And it has been postulated that these estrogen receptors may have a moderating effect on androgen action. Here you see a depiction summarizing the development of external genitalia that is color-coded to help identify homologous structures. In comparison to males, the labia minora are homologous to the urethral folds in the penis, and the vestibule in females is homologous to the penile urethra. So with this knowledge that women produce significant amounts of androgen and that the genital tissues in women are androgen sensitive, it's not surprising that a reduction in the biosynthesis of androgens as well as estrogens with aging and menopause leads to structural and functional changes in urogenital tissues. These changes may adversely impact sexual function in women. What kind of changes are we talking about? In GSM or genitourinary syndrome of menopause, clinical symptoms range from progressive atrophic tissue alterations like resorption of labia, loss of vaginal decay, thinning of vaginal epithelium, to functional alterations like dryness, dyspareunia, and increased vaginal pH. And all of these symptoms are associated with significant levels of distress. As a reminder, the classical mechanism of action for testosterone and DHT is through intracellular binding of the androgen receptor, and then undergoes, uh, that then undergoes a conformational change 
dimerizes and recruits transcriptional factors around androgen response elements, noted here as ARE. This then activates the transcription of messenger RNA and subsequent translation into various protein products that exert both trophic and functional effects in many different tissues and organs, as shown in the lower right. Just to emphasize the point, if we expand the list of urogenital tissues and associated pelvic floor muscles and ligaments, you can see how androgen deficient states can impact sexual function in women. Now, the activity of androgens is not so straightforward since the androgen receptor can be regulated on multiple levels and steroid receptors can regulate each other. For example, the androgen receptor can prevent activation of estrogen receptor alpha target genes. Intriguingly, modulation of kinase and phosphatase activity can activate steroid receptors independent of ligand. Coactivators normally associated with androgen receptors can interact with ER-alpha, and transcription factors like NF-kappa-B can interact with multiple steroid receptors. Furthermore, androgen receptor activity can be allosterically regulated by P21 activating kinase, and transcriptional co-regulators like STAT3 can stimulate transcriptional activity of steroid receptors. So the takeaway message is that hormonal changes equal tissue changes, and these transitions are a continuum throughout life. In many women, these changes in later life result in significantly bothersome symptoms. So androgens are important for maintaining urogenital tissue structure and function in women. How about centrally? Are androgens important for women in the CNS with regard to sexual function? Of course, the answer is yes. Here you see a simplified overview of various neurotransmitters and hormones and their roles in the brain with regard to sexual desire and arousal. Those having a stimulatory effect are shown in green, and those having an inhibitory effect are shown in red. In general, testosterone acts in the medial preoptic area, or the MPOA, to stimulate dopamine, which has a positive influence on sexual desire. In animal studies, testosterone can also be converted via aromatase to estradiol to mediate trophic effects such as nerve growth responses as well as consumatory behavior. Now here's the problem. Most of our understanding of testosterone in the brain is from studies in male animals. Some of the more salient points are only aromatizable androgens stimulate copulatory behavior Aromatase inhibitors suppress male sexual behavior, and antiestrogens block testosterone-induced copulatory behavior. Also, whether DHT is present or not, estradiol mimics most of the effects of testosterone on sexual behavior. But here's the crux of the matter. Aromatase activity in the brain may be sexually dimorphic. Thus, there is evidence that aromatase may be less active in females. The other issue to consider is whether mounting and copulatory behavior in male animals, as is done in most behavioral studies, whether that comprises sexual desire. It's also true that appetitive behaviors more reflective of sexual desire are distinct, distinct from consumatory behaviors like mounting and copulation. 
So what we think we know about testosterone and desire from animal studies is not necessarily reflective of sexual desire. So does testosterone only act through estrogen in the CNS? As it turns out, there appear to be estrogen-independent effects of testosterone if you look with the correct experimental design. For example, testosterone propionate implanted into the MPOA or dorsomedial hypothalamus induces sexual behavior in female animals that have low levels of estrogen. In addition, testosterone increases appetitive sexual behavior in female rats in the presence of the aromatase inhibitor, fadrosol. Testosterone increases immunoreactivity for FOS, which is an early response gene that mediates long-term effects of growth factors and membrane depolarizing signals on neural activity. FOS immunoreactivity increases in specific brain structures involved in sexual desire and arousal. Lastly, SARMs, selective androgen receptor modulators, that cannot be converted to estradiol, increase sexual motivation and proceptive behaviors in overactivized female rats. Now, in case you're wondering, proceptive behaviors are behaviors enacted by a female to initiate, maintain, or escalate a sexual interaction. And those types of behaviors can be stimulated by SARMs. While we don't have a one-to-one -one correlation in the clinical realm with this laboratory research data, these findings are consistent with clinical experience, as reflected by the recent global consensus position statement on testosterone therapy in women. This statement was simultaneously published in five journals and endorsed by 11 societies worldwide. And among the main outcomes of this consensus was that systemic testosterone therapy in postmenopausal women at doses that approximate testosterone concentrations in premenopausal women is effective in treating acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder. This was supported by multiple large randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. I'll leave the other clinical details to my colleagues, and I thank you for your attention to this portion of the course. Should you have any questions, feel free to contact me at this email address. Thanks again, and I'll turn the screen over to Dr. Rubin. Hello, everybody. Uh, Dr. Kim, as always, I learn every time I listen to you speak. He is our current president of ISWISH and an incredible basic science researcher. Um, I'm so glad to see everybody today. I'm Rachel Rubin. I uh, work in Washington, DC. I was a former fellow of Dr. Erwin Goldstein. And it was at this course when I was a junior resident that I realized, uh, oh my gosh, there are people who do exactly what I want to do. And so as a urologist, I take care of both men and women with sexual problems, which just makes perfect sense. Uh, as urologists, we own sexual medicine and we should do so for male and female patients and all genders really, including our transgender patients. So um, as I figure out how to advance the slides here, I'm going to talk to you today about history and physical exam, as well as uh, management of, of some sexual pain disorders. And there we go. So how do you get a good history? Uh, when you're dealing with patients, you have a busy clinic, you're seeing 50 patients, you just ask. 
you don't have to be smooth. You don't have to be know everything. You don't have to even know all the answers, but you may be the only person to ever ask your female patients, uh, can you have an orgasm? If so, do you have any problems, questions, issues around orgasm? How about arousal, pain, desire? Please just ask your patients. Um, if you want uh, more information on how to ask about sexual problems, ISWISH has come up with a process of care of really guides you through what are the different uh, problems that occur and how do you ask about them. So if you like papers, uh, this is one that it's open access from the Mayo Clinic uh, proceedings and really helpful. Specific questions you can ask, are you sexually active? Are there concerns you wish to discuss? Uh, explain to your patient that sexual problems are quite common. Assure the patient that you are comfortable uh, discussing these sexual issues. If you're not awkward, the patient won't be awkward. Show confidence that you know what you're doing. You do it for your male patients every day. Um, you can say many patients with diabetes, many patients going through menopause. There are a lot of ways uh, to ask these questions really important to take time with your patients. Do it when they have clothes on. Uh, look them in the eye, don't interrupt, don't make assumptions that they're 80 years old and they don't like having orgasms. I assure you they do. Um, ask questions after the patient has had time to talk and take notes. It's really helpful so you can go back. We have validated questionnaires. If you like having questionnaires in your office to pre-screen, we have desire questionnaires. The FSFI, the Female Sexual Function Index, is a really great, great questionnaire. It's like the IIEF. Um, we also have the Female Sexual Distress Scale. So really, we have great questionnaires you can use. If you're asking about libido, you've got five questions. It takes two seconds. In the past, was your level of desire good? Uh, has there been a decrease in your level of desire? Are you bothered by your decrease in your level of desire? And would you like it to increase? And then you go through a list of what are things that may be contributing to their low desire. Physical exam, we're gonna run through this. Um, it's really important that as urologists, we get comfortable examining the vulva. The vulva is the penis, it's the homologue, it's all the same tissue. We're very comfortable with penile anatomy, and yet no doctors are comfortable examining the vulva regularly. Uh, gynecologists don't do it, uh, they're not trained to, they put a speculum in and they just go straight on past it. So you cannot diagnose sexual problems if you don't know that they exist. And most of the problems that we see in sexual medicine, especially our sexual pain disorders, actually occur around the vulva. So just like Dr. Kim mentioned, uh, the vulva is the, this incredible junction between ectoderm skin, when the skin then turns into the endoderm, which is the lining of the bladder, this vestibule, everyone say the word out loud, vestibule, it's, uh, it's gonna be the code to you getting your CME, so you gotta learn the word. The vestibule, it contains the urethra. This is all endoderm. This is the most important tissue that we see uh, for sexual pain disorders, and nobody really teaches us about it. Inside the vagina is the mesoderm. So here, embryologically, you have three separate embryologic structures that have different nerve endings, hormone requirements, and you can see act very differently. Um, the labia minora is incredibly hormonally sensitive tissue, and you can see it absorbs and literally melts away uh, with menopause. I always joke, if men's penises shriveled up at age 52, we would have vaccines for prevention, okay? We have to pay attention to the hormone status of the vulva. When you follow up the labia minora, you get to the clitoris. The clitoris has a prepuce. It has a foreskin. It's exactly the same as the male prepuce. 
and problems can happen with the PrEP use, which we can talk about. They get phimosis, they get adhesions, all sorts of issues can come up. This tissue, as Dr. Kim so wonderfully told us, is hormonally sensitive. This is a picture of a woman on tamoxifen. Her vestibule is incredibly red, raw, and irritated. This is not an infection. Uh, this is not lichen planus. This is just a hormone change to the vestibule. And it's not just an estrogen story, which is what we need to stop thinking. It is also an androgen story. And so this tissue, it's really important to get not just estrogen, but testosterone as well. So it is not just the menopausal women who are affected. It is those on oral birth control pills, breastfeeding women, women on infertility treatments, our, um, our transgender male patients can be affected here. Anyone who has hormone changes, they've had ovaries removed, can certainly have issues uh, in this vestibule tissue, which we will talk about. Hormones really matter for this tissue. Again, this is the same homologous tissue. Uh, we all start the same way and you get either a penis or a vulva, depending on how lucky you are. And we have to pay more attention to all the pathologies that can happen in the penis happen in the vulva. And if we're as comfortable examining vulvas the same way we are examining penises as urologists, we will help a lot more people. So how do I do it? How do we examine a vulva? Well, you do it systematically. You want to start lateral, go to medial, external to internal. If you look at the vulva, the vestibule, and the vagina, if you do it the same way every time, you won't miss something. If you look at a thousand normal exams, you will pick up that clitoral adhesion. You will pick up that vestibulodynia, which you think right now is interstitial cystitis, but is actually a problem with her birth control pills, which we'll talk about. So I look at the labia <clears throat> I look at the labia majora. I palpate it up and down and ask her if she's had any pain because right under the labia majora is pelvic floor muscles and I'll tend to get pelvic floor involved, physical therapy involved if they have pain here. You can touch it with a Q-tip to see if they have any pain to the touch. Again, this is all skin conditions. Um, so you're not dealing with the endoderm at that point. I, um, I retract the, the clitoral hood. This is a woman who has phimosis. I look for clitoral adhesions. It's a way you can really ask women, uh, can you have an orgasm? Do you have pain with orgasm or problems with orgasm? I know my male patients with phimosis definitely don't like having erections. And so my female patients with phimosis may have pain with arousal. And so it's really important to understand that. I look at the labia minora. Baby girls do not have labia minora. When they go through puberty, they develop labia minora. And we do all sorts of things as a society to screw up with people's hormones. And so things like birth control pills can cause atrophy of labia minora. Menopause causes atrophy of labia minora. So it becomes very helpful for you to, to look at the tissue and you can also show your patients and so they can see um, if they've had hormonal changes and then they may adhere to more treatments because they can see the physical manifestations of their lack of hormones uh, in this area. Obviously, you know how to look at urethras. You guys are all really good at that. You wanna look at the urethra, look for erythema, look for pain, look for you know, caruncles and things like that. The vestibule, this is the most important exam you are not doing right now. You really want to spread the labia minora and you want to find that vestibule tissue and you touch it like a Q-tip, you press it to the vestibule like in a clock-like fashion and you assess for pain, 
Um, and oftentimes you could touch them right out here and they'll say, that does not hurt. I had a patient in my office just today. I touched her here. She said, well, that doesn't hurt at all. I touched her right here and she said, that is searing, raw, burning, cutting, horrible pain. And then I touched her right here near her urethra with a Q-tip and she said, nope, that doesn't hurt at all. I promise you that wasn't her religious upbringing. Uh, that is a, a tissue problem from her birth control pills um, that was causing her to have pain in that area. So the vestibule exam, if you don't do it, in my opinion, you shouldn't be diagnosing interstitial cystitis. Uh, interstitial cystitis should be a diagnosis of exclusion. Please exclude the vestibule. We've done a lot of research that shows many women who got a diagnosis of IC um, actually got that diagnosis taken away once we treated their vestibulodynia. Speculum exams can be very helpful here. You want to look inside and you can kind of turn your speculum over and you can see um, the urethra, you can see the periurethral tissue. This is prostate tissue, the anterior vaginal wall, which some people refer to as the G spot. It's not one spot, it's very sensitive tissue that has a lot of nerve endings that does stain for PSA, which I'm sure Dr. Goldstein will talk about. Uh, it can be very helpful in those women to check a pH. So I get a pH narrow range pH paper, you check the pH and you can see how alkaline their tissue is in menopause. And so when you give them vaginal hormone therapy, you can watch it become more acidic. And they say, wow, my UTIs, my recurrent UTIs all went away. And you can show them that um, acidity change and they have a reason for it. And then they stick to therapy and they understand why it's working. It's really important you learn how to examine the pelvic floor. Let me see if this video plays. You stick your finger in the vagina and you palpate it like a clock. You work your way around. You, you palpate on bladder. You palpate each side. And if it feels like a tight muscle or they say, ow, guess what? They have pelvic floor dysfunction and they need to go. Oh, I'm so sorry. They need to go to pelvic floor physical therapy. That is unfortunate that that's happening right now. Okay, sorry about that. They need to go to pelvic floor physical therapy. You don't have to know the name of the iliococcygeus. You don't have the name, you know the name of the pubococcygeus. I always forget which one is which anyway. You put your finger in the vagina, you work around like a clock. If it feels like a tight banded muscle or they say, ow, to physical therapy, they go. The physical therapists are the most important um, people at, to be a part of this team when you're treating uh, sexual pain issues. So we're gonna um, advance now. We're gonna talk about the medical management of sexual pain. Doing this in 12 minutes is certainly not easy. So I really encourage you to be involved with ISWISH to consider coming to our courses because we really go into this in full detail. There's a textbook. Uh, that you can purchase. I find that When Sex Hurts is a really good uh, resource for patients um, to really understand uh, what can be going on with their bodies. And there's also a, uh, an entire book on female sexual pain disorders and a new edition that should be coming out very soon. So I wanna talk about um, two conditions that are, I find to be the most common causes of dyspareunia in my patients. The first one, um, it should roll off your tongue very easy by the end of this, is GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. I want everyone to say it loudly, GSM. Um, you treat this every single day in your clinic, you just don't realize you do. Um, and so we're gonna talk about that. And then provoked vestibulodynia, which I alluded to. You see how red and irritated this vestibule is. Um, I'm gonna talk about the common causes of that. So GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. 
Um, we talk about it at the AUA all the time. We had these great guidelines that came out in 2019 about how to treat recurrent urinary tract infections. They said this wonderful thing, statement 16, in peri and postmenopausal women with recurrent UTIs, clinicians should recommend vaginal estrogen therapy to reduce the risk of future UTIs if there is no contraindication to estrogen therapy. Um, it says it there, level grade B evidence, as urologist, this needs to be in your arsenal, this needs to be in your toolbox. As often as you prescribe Flomax, sorry, Tamsulosin, you should be prescribing vaginal hormone therapy to your menopausal patients. Education is absolutely essential to adherence. So if you don't understand how to prescribe it or how to administer it, the patients will not stick to it. This, if I could buy a billboard, this is what would go on my billboard, honestly. I don't care if there's a translator in the room. I don't care what kind of patient or how much time I have with a patient, even if it's five minutes. I can show a patient these two pictures and say, which vulva do you want? Okay, if I'm about to put in a penile implant and it's the vulva on the right, where, that is his partner, where is that implant gonna go? He's not gonna use it. Uh, and so you really have to educate patients, both male and female, about genitourinary syndrome of menopause because this is what happens. You lose the labia minora, the introitus narrows, the vestibule is red, raw, and irritated. The urethra is falling on the floor. I assure you cranberry pills are not going to fix this problem. This is what healthy pink um, stretchy tissue looks like. It's acidic, the urethra is hidden. This does not get recurrent UTIs nearly as much as this patient. This is not about sexual function. This is preventing 99 year old grandma from uh, going to the emergency room with UTI sepsis during a cor corona pandemic. It's happening all the time. So it's not just about sex. Like I said, GSM is vaginal dryness, decreased lubrication, pain with sex, but how about pain with urination, urinary frequency and urgency, recurrent urinary tract infections. This is our condition. This is our problem. Gynecologists do not screen for GSM. They not, do not tell women about GSM. And less than 6% of women are on therapy for GSM. This is a progressive problem. Hot flashes, they go away over time for many women. GSM gets worse and worse and worse over time. So you're giving patients anticholinergics um, when you could be giving them the, the fix, right? You're giving them these Band-Aids when you could be fixing the tissue. It's really fun to treat, it's really easy to treat, and you will make a happy patient in about one to two months because it takes about two months to work. Creams, these are the cream options. Yeah, you, we are underdosing women. When you have them put a dab of estrace or estrogen cream on their urethra, it's not enough. They need more cream in their vagina to acidify the whole vagina so it can like relax the pelvic floor and so that they can fight infections and they can have a less pelvic floor pain. And so I think we are, as urologists, are underdosing and we're too afraid of these creams for absolutely no reason. I will also say women don't love creams. They don't love putting creams in their vagina. And so some of these newer therapies can be very helpful. They have rings, especially for your patients with poor dexterity. Vaginal DHEA is a wonderful treatment, and we have an AUA abstract that it decreases recurrent UTIs as well, um, and there's other therapies as well. As I said, a dab of estrogen uh, cream is typically not enough. This is absorption data, which shows that at, at, at eight hours from the first dose, you get a, a slight blip in your systemic estrogen levels to 20. So if you've checked a, a test, an estrogen level on a male patient, it's still less than what your male estrogen levels are. After that first eight hours, 
And from then on with vaginal estrogen therapy, you do not get increases in systemic levels of estrogen. And so you really have to teach patients that this is not systemic hormone therapy, which I would argue could help a lot of your patients in many ways. But when you do have patients who are so fearful of the word estrogen, you can really get them to understand that it's not going to hurt them. Now they're going to go home and see the box and the box tells them they're going to get stroke, heart attack, blood clots, dementia. And if they don't use progesterone with their estrogen, they're going to get cancer. So they often throw it in the garbage and say, Dr. Rubin's trying to kill me. Um, that's where the education comes into play. And we as a society need to fight this box warning. They sent a letter to the FDA and the FDA said, we agree. It doesn't cause any of those things, um, but we're going to keep the box on it. So as an advocacy project, if anyone knows, um, any, anybody at the FDA, we should get in touch with them. So the labeling for low-dose vaginal estrogen need to change. These are based on studies that were on synthetic oral uh, systemic hormone therapy, and that's not what we're using here. So you can't call, it's like saying a birth control pill and a condom have the same side effects because they're both contraception. They're not the same thing. So local vaginal hormone therapy is not the same thing as systemic hormone therapy, which everyone is so afraid of, but shouldn't be. So the other common cause of dyspareunia, which we're gonna talk about in the last couple of minutes, is provoked vestibulodynia. When I hear a woman come in with pain with intercourse, my money is always on her vestibule. Yes, endometriosis is common. Yes, there are other causes of pelvic pain and pain with sex, but almost always the money should be on the vestibule here. Um, vestibulodynia, where, it's where you have pain at the vestibule, it can be provoked or unprovoked, it can be lifelong, it can be spontaneous. Patient who the first time they put a tampon in, it was horribly painful the first time they ever had sex, or they can develop it over time. I got a yeast infection and after that, it was painful. Or after I started my birth control pills, it was painful. We have algorithms that we use, and these algorithms are very helpful. If you have pain all throughout the vestibule, it may be a hormone problem, an inflammatory problem, a congenital neuroproliferative problem, uh, or it can be a pelvic floor problem. So really using an algorithmic approach to treating pelvic pain can be very helpful. So what are the main causes of vestibulodynia? Hormones, number one, pelvic floor muscle tension, number two, and too many nerve endings or neuroproliferative vestibulodynia is um, a, more rare, but also can happen. So why hormones? So again, just like Dr. Kim said, testosterone is important for the vestibule. When you take birth control pills, it increases SHBG. If you check a male SHBG, it's about 25. If you check a female who is on birth control pills, I heard recently someone had a patient who was over 500. And so that SHBG is going to gobble up all the free testosterone in their body, and the testosterone is not going to get to the vestibule. And so unfortunately, just stopping birth control pills doesn't always fix the problem. But we definitely recommend stopping birth control pills. IUDs tend to be uh, less bad for the vestibule. Um, and we do often recommend compounded estradiol testosterone gel on the vestibule twice a day. Dr. Golting has presented data that um, vaginal DHEA is also helpful in, with this problem. And clinically, I do see it as well. It takes a long time for this tissue to get better. Just as Dr. Kim said, you have to really get the proteins going and you get, have to get the, the hormones working at the tissue level. 
pelvic floor dysfunction. After you fix the hormone problem, often you still get pain at the bottom of the vestibule, right at the bottom, which is where all the superficial pelvic floor muscles come together. Um, that's when you really get your pelvic floor physical therapist involved, and they do a lot of, of different trigger point work with them. Vaginal suppositories with diazepam or baclofen can be helpful, usually dosed you know, three times a week. You don't tend to need to dose them every day. Um, and we do have a very pretty good data with, with a botulinum toxin and other trigger point injections, which can be uh, uh, used well. And finally, let me see if I can go to the last slide. Um, this is where the superficial muscles and where we, we go after our trigger point injections with botulinum toxin. So pelvic floor physical therapy, it's not just for women, it will help all of your male patients as well with any kind of urinary symptoms, pain, pain with sitting, vulvar symptoms, orgasm issues, and urinary symptoms. Um, this is a picture of, of one way to do um, a botulinum toxin or trigger point injection. And for your patient that it's not hormonal, it's not muscular, she was the first time she ever put a tampon in, uh, they had horrible pain, nothing, all your conservative measures fail. Um, we have surgical options to remove the vestibule. We have a, a video, um, a video uh, on YouTube that was presented at the AUA in 2017 about uh, our, our technique. We also, there are some conservative uh, uh, ways to treat this, but they don't tend to work as well as a surgical removal of the tissue. This is very quick. If you want to hear more, uh, go to the AUA core curriculum. We spent a lot of time revamping it and um, making it easy, easy to navigate. And if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to email or um, follow Dr. Winter on Twitter because she's amazing. I will leave it to her. Festival. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Rachel, for that great introduction. Uh, you, everybody should also follow uh, Rachel Rubin. She's amazing. And uh, that was a really wonderful presentation that covered a tremendous swath of information. And we will kind of dive into a more narrow topic in the next few minutes here. So let me advance my slide. Okay, great. So. I will be speaking about the medical management of hypoactive sexual desire disorder. All right, so hypoactive sexual desire disorder is roughly defined as the recurrent deficiency of sexual fantasy or desire for sexual activity, which causes distress. And that is not otherwise accounted for by uh, another medical or psychiatric condition. Uh, you know, I roughly think of this as the I want to want it condition, but don't actually want it. Uh, so going along here, the a lot of the key physiology was was already covered previously. Um, and really the point of this slide here is to you know hone down or drill down on the fact that the fundamental principle of treating uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder is tipping the balance of uh, kind of pro-sex signaling into the brain versus um, uh, kind of anti-sex signaling in the brain it, towards uh, the excitation predominant uh, state. And if you see here over on the left side, uh, essentially uh, this is the schematic of, of a woman with HSTD. And, uh, you know, we're saying that the neuronal signaling is more pro-inhibition. And then 
uh, when you look at treatment strategies, which can be and should be all of education, um, medication treatment, sex therapy, uh, that you can move towards the excitation predominant uh, model. Now, uh, in terms of a recap, right? So inhibitory neurotransmitters in general uh, include serotonin and opioids, although the role of serotonin in this process is extraordinarily complex. And there are many subtypes of serotonin receptors and that have differential activity in, in different parts of the brain. Uh, and then, you know, common pro-sex neurotransmitters include dopamine, melanocortin, uh, oxytocin, vasopressin, and norepinephrine. All right. Uh, and again, you know, multidisciplinary treatment paradigms should be always encouraged, although not, not the focus of this particular talk. Ah. I'm going the wrong way. Uh, sorry, I'm moving my slides in the wrong direction. All right, so back to HSDD treatment. So um, let's see. So the broad groupings of HSDD treatment would be uh, either uh, off-label versus FDA approved or hormonal versus non-hormonal. Uh, the non-hormonal agents are sometimes called CNS agents, although we know that hormones function within the CNS as well. Um, so before going into the hormonal treatments and the FDA-approved treatments, which, which I'll do in more detail, uh, you know, just a brief mention that uh, bupropion or Welbutrin and, and buspirone are, are commonly uh, prescribed for, for some of these, for HSDD, uh, you know, does not have as robust data as the other treatment uh, modalities, but they are, you know, easy to acquire and generally inexpensive medications. Uh, you know, potentially if you have a patient who's already on one of these and uh, could consider increasing their dose, um, you know, that would be something to, to incorporate into their treatment. Um, all right. So, All right, so hormonal therapy. Uh, predominantly, we'll focus on uh, testosterone, but we will just mention uh, estrogen or uh, estradiol treatment in brief. Um, and, you know, I do want to make a point of saying, uh, you know, there's such a dichotomization classically in our training between associating, uh, you know, female sexual function and, and reproduction and, and um, uh, you know, pelvic health with, with estrogens and men with, with testosterone. But if you actually look uh, at the, uh, you know, blood concentrations of uh, testosterone and, and estradiol in any woman, uh, generally testosterone is higher. So, um, you know, and, and the way to remember that is that when you look at your blood, um, your, your, your reports from the lab, uh, right, you have your estradiols and picograms, uh, and the testosterone is mentioned in nanograms and, well, you know, average per volume. But, but regardless, the point being, it's fascinating that we actually, if you're looking at our serum concentrations, we have uh, higher uh, testosterone levels uh, than we do estradiol levels in our blood. Uh, so we actually all have lots more testosterone in men and women than, than estrogens. All right. 
moving on. So this is an interesting study uh, that was looking at the difference between oral and transdermal estrogen therapy uh, in women who are in early menopause. Um, and uh, you know, essentially what this study showed uh, when, they, when they looked at 670 women, average age in their early 50s, uh, who were randomized to oral versus transdermal estrogen, uh, um, that uh, basically the transdermal uh, estrogens had a uh, greater improvement uh, in terms of affecting the major domains of sexual function uh, than the oral estrogens. So oral estrogens uh, showed most of their effect in improving sexual function via improved lubrication and decreased pain with sex, um, but uh, did not demonstrate the same um, improvement uh, with sexual desire as uh, the transdermal estrogens. And a key point of this, and one that also loops back to something uh, Dr. Rubin mentioned about oral contraceptive pills, is that uh, the oral uh, hormone replacements uh, increase sex hormone binding globulin, and therefore they decrease the bioavailable uh, testosterone or can you know, decrease the bioavailable testosterone. And so it can have a deleterious effect um, in terms of sexual desire. So, you know, I think it is really important uh, and, you know, I, I make a habit of never prescribing, um, you know, oral estrogens for women who are uh, undergoing hormone replacement therapy, but really important to just emphasize the fact that, uh, you know, your most pro-sex friendly and pro-sexual desire friendly uh, estrogens or estradiol is really, uh, you know, non-oral. All right, so this was alluded to er earlier, um, the global consensus position statement for the use of testosterone therapy in women. Excellent paper came out just about a year ago, published in multiple journals. I do encourage everybody who is uh, here to, to actually go ahead and, and read this in detail. Um, and I will not, uh, let's see here. Um, but I will go through kind of the summary of the key findings. Uh, so um, the evidence, the main evidence-based or the only evidence-based indication for testosterone therapy in women is the treatment of hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Uh, I do use it for other things, uh, as alluded to, uh, you know, using um, testosterones in conjunction with estrogens uh, for uh, um, vestibulodynia, for example. Um, but, you know, definitely strong evidence uh, for the use of um, testosterone with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So, uh, you know, meta-analysis show no severe adverse events. Uh, when you prescribe testosterone to women uh, to reach uh, a physiological level, right? So uh, the amount of testosterone you are giving is functionally very low relative to the amount you would be giving men. And uh, the target range that you're trying to achieve when you give women testosterone, typically what we're talking about is um, postmenopausal women, uh, is that they achieve their premenopausal range. So uh, additionally, long-term safety has not been as well established. And uh, total serum, 
concentrations should not be used primarily as the diagnosis of HSDD. So HSDD is established through, uh, you know, specific screening based on a patient's uh, history uh, in terms of, you know, ruling out other comor comorbid causes uh, and establishing that they have reduced desire and distress. All right. So uh, again, target the normal physiologic range. Um, and there's currently no FDA approved um, formulas. Now, that really is a tragedy. And I was looking at a great article that was recently published in Journal Sexual Medicine, actually earlier today, uh, you know, and that part of the fundamental reason why we don't have FDA approval um, for use of testosterone in HSDD is because of variability of outcomes. And in part, those studies have women on oral estrogens and some on transdermal estrogens. And so when we incorporate our understanding of the effect of uh, oral estrogens on SHBG, then you, know, you can see how um, there's fundamental methodologic flaws in the way that uh, some of these studies have been done and, and really needs to be revisited uh, to give women the opportunity to have an FDA approved product and more importantly, to have insurance coverage. All right, so uh, non-hormonal therapy. Oh, move along here. Uh, so bremodilanotide and flobanserin are Really, really exciting drugs. Uh, let's jump into them a little more. So bremelanotide uh, is a melanocortin receptor agonist. Uh, it activates several receptors. Uh, most relevantly, uh, this MC4R and also MC1R, uh, and basically has been shown, uh, you know, in preclinical trials to uh, increase uh, the effect of dopamine in key parts of the brain. Uh, and and cause increased sexual interest. So, yeah. All right. Ooh. Sorry, going back. All right. So, how is it administered? It's administered on demand. This is not something you take every day. So you take it when you want to want it. Uh, it is subcutaneous, auto-injector. Um, you take it about 45 minutes before you want to use it. Um, it does not require refrigeration. And showing here the clinical trial data, uh, it has been shown to increase um, both uh, sexual desire or the domain desire of the FSFI, uh, as well as decreased distress associated with uh, you know, low sexual desire. And uh, here's that, here's that data as well. Um, uh, you can see some of the other improvements associated with using bremelanotide uh, in terms of uh, sexual satisfaction, orgasm, lubrication, arousal. All right. Uh, typical or the most common side effects include nausea, flushing, headache. Um, and uh, don't need to go into that too much. If you have a patient with nausea on this, you can give them antiemetics. Uh, okay, flibanserin, really important. This was the first FDA approved medication for HSDD. It is a uh, mixed uh, serotonin agonist and an antagonist. It also works through a very complicated mechanism affecting uh, the effect of dopamine in key parts of the brain, really great drug. This is a pill 
and it's not used on demand, it's taken every day. Uh, so, you know, part of a patient's choice to choose one versus the other may depend on preference in that regard. And what you can see in the pivotal clinical trials is that uh, flibanserin uh, improved sexually satisfying events, as well as improved that FSFI desire domain and also reduced distress. So the key difference in terms of looking at metrics is that we have the, S, the sexually satisfying events here, not for bremelanotide, but part of that had to do with the incumbent FDA regulations uh, when getting approval. And uh, moving along, uh, here are the common side effects. Um, if you compare them to other CNS drugs, if you look here, such as SSRIs, uh, essentially on par. And the reason for bringing this up is that because in the beginning of the, this drug being on the market, uh, women were required to sign this ridiculous waiver saying they essentially would never drink ever when they were taking the drug, um, which was due to a bad study, which made subjects take flibanserin and chug some alcohol on an empty stomach and they got dizzy, uh, which was ridiculous. And, you know, essentially uh, now you just instruct patients to not drink and take the pill at the exact same time and, and to monitor their symptoms. Uh, but they are allowed to partake of alcohol, generally recommended only one or two drinks and spaced out by at least uh, more than an hour. And you take it at night. Uh, this is a study design which just showed that sex therapy in conjunction with flibanserin led to better results than flibanserin alone, uh, which makes sense. And, uh, you know, obviously it's always great to have a relationships with, with a sex therapist uh, who can help out your patients with HSDD. All right, and thank you so much for having me. I am sorry for going over my time and thank you, Dr. Goldstein. You're wonderful, take it away. <laughs> Ashley, thank you so much. Doctors Kim, Ruben and Winter, you have done fabulously. We are in the turning, we're, we're turning over to the end of the thing. We have 23 minutes we're gonna do arousal, uh, um, including persistent genital arousal, we're going to do orgasm, we're going to do surgery. Uh, before I go on, I just want to call out uh, Sarah and Erin of the Office of Education at the AUA for amazing, amazing job in making this happen. So uh, as I advance the, the slides, um, this is uh, Ashley's Twitter if you needed to do that. And uh, this is uh, the topics for the 23 minutes that I'm going to spend we're gonna talk about uh, medical management of arousal disorders. That's called FSAD, female sexual arousal disorder. We're gonna talk about persistent genital arousal disorder, a relatively uncommon, but uh, really horrible uh, uh, sexual condition of women. Uh, we'll talk about orgasm disorders, very common uh, problem. And for one, we have uh, um, not exactly a, a perfect algorithmic uh, management. And then we're gonna do the surgical management as surgeons, uh, uh, urologists uh, um, have the opportunity to really dive into uh, um, medically resistant uh, pain disorders. So we're going to start with arousal disorders. Uh, essentially, they mimic the, the erectile dysfunction, so it's persistent or recurrent inability to obtain or maintain uh, the, the arousal uh, function. Uh, there's sort of a peripheral version, uh, which is a neurovascular phenomenon. Um, and that's down here, um, and the, the peripheral one is involved in lubrication and engorgement and improvement in sensitivity. And then there's a turn-on version, a, a central uh, a cognitive uh, arousal version of arousal disorder. I, I sort of, uh, if you have nothing else to do and you think 
of a, of a man in your office with intracavernosal injection, and he has sort of an erection, but he has no sort of turn on uh, centrally, you could sort of think of the cognitive versus the peripheral uh, um, in, in, and that parallel to, to uh, women. Um, risk factors for arousal disorders are similar to risk factors for arousal disorders in men. It's a cardiovascular phenomenon and a neurologic phenomenon. So hypertension, hyperlipidemia affect arousals in women. Uh, radiation and uh, uh, surgery where it involves uh, nerve injury at the autonomic level. Hypertension, hyperlipidemia are risk factors for arousal problems. The way we're going to go through arousal and persistent genital arousal and orgasm disorders is by algorithm of location. So I want you to get used to this phenomenon and I want you to uh, uh, share, because uh, these slides will have the commonality. So we're gonna call uh, disorders that involve, uh, I'm going the wrong direction here. Let's see, if I go backwards, going the wrong direction. <laughs> Let's see, okay, back. Okay, right here you see that there's uh, end organ, region one. Uh, between the end organ and the spine is region two. The spine in the lower region is region three. Then there's region four and region five. I want you to think of pathologies that involve uh, those uh, 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 regions, because there's five regions for that. And then common disorders in region one would be, Dr. Uh, Rubin spoke of the, uh, the problem with adhesions or pain in the clitoris or reduced sensation of the clitoris from nerve injury. Uh, we do urethral sling surgeries and we injure the autonomic nerves uh, around the, uh, the periurethral tissue. And for gynecologists who injure the nerves around the cervix, uh, 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 loop electrosurgical uh, uh, excision procedures, LEAP, uh, problems in the pudendal nerve, pelvic floor, pelvic floor dysfunction, radical surgery, pudendal neuropathy, and then regions in the spine. So these are neurovascular complaints which occur in regions one, two, and three, which could affect arousal. If you think of it in a, a sort of a regional way, you can better understand uh, the way to diagnose. So, uh, for example, in a, uh, in a, to diagnose arousal problems in women, like we do ultrasounds in men, you could do a grayscale. Here's the tunic albuginae, here's the septum, here's the erectile tissue, here's the blood flow during arousal. Here's the peak systolic velocity and diastolic velocities. So you can do that. We have neurologic testing. Uh, of course, physical examination. So you can do arousal for, uh, you can do diagnoses for arousal disorders. And for treatments, we sort of manage them by the region. So if you expect the woman who has an arousal, neurovascular arousal problem in region one, a clitoris problem, uh, uh, a, a vulvar problem, as uh, the previous speakers have spoke of, here are strategies. If you have a shockwave device, you can actually use it in the general. CO2 fractional lasers are very successful. Uh, oral pills, the Viagra pills, uh, topical Viagra pills, cannabinoids are used within vasodilators, uh, uh, vibrators and lubricants. Pelvic floor physical therapy, if there's a pudendal nerve involvement or pudendal nerve entrapment uh, surgery, nerve stimulators, uh, sacral stimulators. Region three, we can do lumbosacral shockwave therapy, cotequina surgery. In region five, we can do uh, essentially what Dr. Winter talked about for uh, uh, libido problems can be used for arousal problems. So here's region one. These are various lubricators, lubrications, uh, arousal disorders. Here's Viagra Cialis, here's uh, topical. 
this is a shock wave. This is uh, the Mona Lisa or CO2 fractional laser at the vestibule and inside the vagina. And these are cannabinoids. These are good for arousal disorders. And shockwave therapy to the back can help uh, if there's an arousal problem on the basis of a catequina lesion. We're going to leave arousal disorders and move on to this really unbelievably monstrous condition called persistent genital arousal disorder, and the acronym is PGAD. Um, it has the definition of persistent or recurrent and wanted or intrusive distressing feelings of genital arousal or being on the verge of orgasm, but it has nothing to do with sexual interests, thoughts, and fantasies, and needs to last for six months. So here you have women who are walking in the street having uh, arousal phenomena or being on the verge of orgasm or actually entering orgasm without any wanting to do so. It's extremely uh, um, problematic, emotional lability, catastrophization, suicidality are all associated with it. Um, uh, I have seen multiple patients uh, with PGAD and sadly have endured multiple suicide uh, phenomena with uh, this condition. So, uh, again, getting back to the construct of, of where these things may uh, be triggered, we have uh, the trigger could be in region one with a clitoral phimosis, could actually cause PGAD. Uh, we have people with pedendal nerve problems can cause PGAD. We have people with Tarlov cysts or lumbar disc disease causing PGAD. Uh, if you want to look at this fMRI, this is pretty fabulous fMRI. This is the homunculus and the somatosensory cortex. This is the paracentral lobule where the genital is. If you touch, if you ask a woman to touch the clitoris with her hands, this is the region of the light up of the hands. This is the region of the paracentral lobule of the clitoris. It's like a little olive and it's lowly intense in activity uh, on the uh, fMRI. Uh, this is a woman who has PGAD, let's say from a Tarlov cyst. She has unwanted, recurrent, persistent, unbelievable intense activity at the paracentral lobule area, which has nothing to do with her wanting to want to have it. So this is the fMRI of a person with PGAD versus someone who voluntarily touches the clitoris. That's an amazing difference and really shows the, the nightmare of this condition. Anyways, again, with uh, as we did with the regular arousal for the PGAD version of arousal, it could be clitoral phimosis. It could be this vestibulodynia situation, lichen planus, lichen sclerosis, could be something in region two. The pudendal nerve pelvic floor could be a uh, pelvic congestion syndrome or a arterial venous malformation. Could be an annular tear in region three, or uh, uh, again, uh, Tarlov cysts uh, can also cause this. So if we keep it by region, it really helps us understand uh, the, 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 the importance of, to the doctor of trying to be the detective and understand how to deal with it. So in a diagnostic sense, you wanna do what are called regional anesthesia tests. If you touch the clitoris and she says, oh my God, my PGAD really got worse. And then you numb the clitoris. We numb it with benzocaine, lidocaine, and tetracaine. We use the acronym BLT. It's 20%, 8%, and 6% respectively of the various canes. Uh, and her PGAD goes away. Well, okay, we now we have it as region one. If her PGAD gets worse and we touch her vestibule with a Q-tip, and we then numb the vestibule with the same BLT uh, uh, anesthesia and her PGD goes away, okay, we have an explanation for the cause. There's urethral anesthesia tests. We can inject BLT into the urethra. If we uh, anesthetize the pudendal nerve, if we think it's the cauda equina and we do a transforaminal epidural injection or a caudal, caudal perineural injection of lidocaine and the symptoms go away, 
we have an ability to localize the, the pathology. There's another thing we do. Uh, uh, we do this a lot in our facilities, uh, neurologic testing called neurogenital testing. We do uh, testing of uh, quantitative sensory testing, so that's hot, cold, and vibration. We then do non-genital sacred dermatome testing. So we actually place the person prone and do vibration testing in the buttock area, the, the thigh and calf area. So these are posterior. These are all sacral. So if these are abnormal, if this is abnormal, and of course the bubble cavernosis reflex is abnormal, there's no other place it could be but in region three because the, the, the lower extremities will only meet the, the genital tissue in the uh, region of the cotyquin. So it's a very useful way for diagnosis. For treatment, again, we divide it by regions if we believe it to be uh, the problem of clitoral adhesions, of course, lice them. If you think it's the vestibule, you can treat it medically or you could uh, do surgery, and we'll talk about the surgery. You treat the dermatologic pathology or the bladder urethral pathology. If you think it's region two, you can do pedental nerve surgery, pelvic floor therapy, embolization. Region three, uh, cotyquina surgery, spinal stimulators, shockwave therapy. Region five, uh, sex therapy, hormone therapy, and CNS agents. So again, regions one, two, three, four, five allow you to be the detective in diagnosis and the correct strategist for treatment. I don't know if anyone's ever seen a Tarlov cyst, but it actually, this is the nerve root. Here it's coming in, going towards the cotyquina, and here's a crazy Tarlov cyst. It's about, this one is about 1.3 millimeters, and it's dividing the nerve root in half, or maybe two-thirds, one-third, but it's interfering and irritating the nerve root. So if you want to see why that person has in her paracentral lobule intense sensory activation, of her clitoris, it's because this is causing it. it. Has nothing to do with her wanting to have this arousal, it's because something is triggering it. Another trigger would be the annular tear, so the release of the nucleus palposus into the dural space, uh, or the epidural space, uh, and the inflammation crosses the dura, irritating the nerve. So there's evidence of the annular tear, there's evidence of the annular tear on a lumbar MRI. We have a lot of cool medicines for those people who are more interested in medical management versus uh, uh, surgical intervention or uh, other uh, device interventions. So we start with agents that are opioid agonists. Uh, the neurotransmitter gamma aminobutyric acid or GABA is inhibitory, so we have five or six ways to change GABA. We then have ways to dopamine encourages uh, arousal, so you block dopamine with a dopamine antagonist. And then you have the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which elevate serotonin, also inhibitors, and we have four or five examples of that. These are the doses and the relationships to use, and these are very helpful in the management. All right, we're going to leave the arousal and the persistent genital arousal and get to the orgasm disorder. And we'll do sort of the same thing. We're going to give a little background to physiology, but then get into the regions. So FOD is characterized by persistent to recurrent distress and compromise of orgasm. It can happen as not often enough, not strong enough, uh, too early or too late, and the pleasure is uh, not there. So those are the various sort of definitional things of, of female orgasm disorder. I just want to show you in this uh, picture here, during orgasm, there's absolutely no blood flow. So red is blood flow to the brain, white is no blood flow, and in the process of orgasm, there's absolutely no blood to the brain. It's sort of an interesting phenomenon. And if you follow orgasm in the regions where there is blood just before and after, there's multiple projections to multiple 
regions of the brain. It's sort of like an organized seizure, uh, um, and uh, the reflection of that is very interesting on fMRIs. Again, how do you manage this stuff? You divide it by the region. So region one is peripheral, region two is pelvis perineum, region three is the lower part of the spine and then upper part of the spine and brain. Examples of things that cause uh, the orgasm disorders would be similar things to arousal disorders, changes in uh, mid-sling, mid-urethral sling neurologic sensation, in interference with uh, the vagus nerve uh, at the level of the cervix or other nerves, uh, pelvic floor radical surgery, pudendal nerves, lumbar discs. These are all things that can interfere with uh, orgasm, specifically in region one, not in two, three, four, five, but in region one, you can have things that affect clitoral function and you could do things about it. This is a procedure. Uh, uh, these are uh, different pictures of uh, clitoral adhesions and we have procedures that can reduce that and now achieve orgasm. This is a picture of PSA staining glands periurethrally. So Rachel Rubin was right. I was gonna talk about this. <laughs> so have a big smile. Uh, um, clearly the, the tissue around the urethra in women, which we call periurethral, uh, um, anterior wall tissue is prostate. And this is fMRI tissue. These are three nerves of the cervix. They all have individual locations, the clitoris, urethra, and vagina in the paracentral lobule. And uh, cervix is a very important part of orgasm potential. Uh, Rachel brought up the issue of hormone management. So hormone management is another adjunct for managing uh, women. There's testosterone therapy, estrogen therapy, progesterone therapy. We want systemic values of testosterone therapy, 0 0.6 to 0.8 picograms per ml for calculated free, uh, nanograms per deciliter for calculated free T, 25 to 50 picograms per ml for estradiol therapy of many choices. Uh, uh, for its uh, nanograms per ml, one is progesterone therapy. We have local therapy to the vestibule, typically estrogen and testosterone, and intravaginal therapy, all different choices. Uh, the DHEA is a, a common one because it provides testosterone and estrogen. And what do you do when you provide these treatments? Well, you actually return the vestibule to healthy tissues. So this is the vulvoscopy prior to treatment. This is the vulvoscopy during treatment. You make everything pink. Uh, the clitoris grows, the, the, the vagina has more rugae and more pink tissue within it. All right, so for the treatment of uh, female sexual arousal, there's regions one, two, and three. We're going to talk about region three, uh, which is the psych therapy, testosterone therapy, and the bremelanotide fulbanserin therapy, which Dr. Winter did. And let's say that's what you can improve with desire or uh, other aspects of sexual function, you can use these uh, medicines off-label for orgasm disorders. Uh, testosterone therapy in particular, uh, not just in arousal or desire, but also in orgasm, you can see uh, testosterone does improve orgasm. It's different ways to provide orgasm. You have the once-a-day gels, you have the once-a-week injections, and the once-every-four-to-six uh, testosterone pellets. These are all FDA-approved. Uh, strategies. In addition, testosterone will not only improve orgasm and desire, but get involved in complex information processing at the cognitive level, memory, visual, spatial, task formation, uh, memory, and concentration. So uh, true benefits to, to health. Uh, other agents to treat orgasm are drugs that increase dopamine. I would think our more common ones are cabergoline, rapinerol, 
uh, are useful. Bupropion increases dopamine. We also use a lot of ADHD medications, in particular Adderall. It allows people to focus better and allows them to maintain their potential for orgasm throughout the uh, sexual response. And now we're going to get into uh, surgical management of pain disorders. So Dr. Winter did desire, uh, 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 I did arousal and orgasm, and now Rachel did medical management of pain. I'm going to do surgical management of pain. And I want you to know that Rachel showed the, a paradigm. This is another version of the paradigm of sort of management. It's vestibulodynia, the most common cause, as Rachel said. If you do testing and the Q-tip testing is positive throughout the vestibule, you sort of have choices of a medical treatment uh, versus what's called neuroproliferative. And I want to spend two seconds on neuroproliferative. It's a very strange condition. It's a mastocytosis. So it's a level of uh, a, a, a tissue where mast cells accumulate within it. And the mast cells get attracted to the vestibule by some allergic inflammatory response. And then they can't leave. They, they, they stick in the, in the vestibule. And then the mast cells encourage uh, uh, release of healing factors, nerve growth factor. They grow nerves and nociceptors in the vestibule. And the vestibule is this challenge organ with you know, thousands of nerve endings, and of course, it causes pain. So it's not easy to get rid of mast cells and then subsequent nerves in tissue other than removing the tissue. The good news about this surgery is that all you have to do is release the two to three millimeters of the surface lining of the vestibule, and that's called a complete vestibulectomy with vaginal advancement flap. Neuroproliferative vestibulinia can be shown to have polymorphisms for interleukins, uh, interferon, tumor necrosis factor, interleukins, heparinase are all found in this area. There's an increased mast cell in the mucosa, and you see a lot of neuro, neuro, ner, you know, nerve growth. These are uh, stains from San Diego Sexual Medicine's patients. The, we stain our tissues for PGP 9.5, which is C-fiber nociceptors. You can see high densities on this is high power, and you can see lots of these nerves. And we, we stain the tissue with CD117, which is mast cells. You can see how many crazy mast cells are in this tissue. There is no way you're going to have pelvic floor physical therapy uh, or, or trigger point injections or, or amitriptyline going to deal with this. Uh, this is just a, a sort of nightmarish mastocytosis of the vestibule. So what we do with this is this is a physical examination. You see the redness around the vestibule. Heart's line is here. Hymen is here. Uh, this is another picture of too many nerves versus control. You can see the nerves are growing only in the epithelial surface. So we do the regional anesthesia test like we did for persistent general arousal, benzocaine, lidocaine, tetracaine, 20%, 8%, and 6%. That's called BLT. You paint it on. You, you, you paint on the, the, uh, the, the heart's line is lateral and the hymen is medial. And then you touch it in various places. And if you find that patients have no more pain, in a vestibular anesthesia test, that mimics the surgical experience, the, that if you remove the vestibule or you at least numb it and the pain goes away, you have a good chance of reproducing that surgically. Another interesting aspect is umbilical burning, tinging, stinging, and hypersensitivity in a group of women. Because remember, the umbilicus is urachus, and we could say the urachus is endoderm, and Dr. Kim and others have already reminded us how the vestibule is endoderm. So by touching the Q-tip into the umbilicus and getting a hypersensitive response, you're really sort of saying that the endoderm is damaged by mast cells and neuroproliferation. Anyways, this is sort of a pre-op, and this is a six-month post-op. And I just want to show that it's not a, 
a condition of uh, of uh, uh, hurt of of uh, you know of 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 making the woman look different. The vagina is attached to the vulva. Here's the tissue. This is the person before. There's the surgery. This is what she looks like afterwards. It really is not all that uh, uh, bad uh, at the end of the day. Basically, you're taking out the vestibule, advancing the vagina to cover the tissue. Um, and these are other examples of the surgery. Uh, it's a procedure that we in our facility do a lot of and have really a very, very high success rate. Now, as a urologist, urethra can cause sexual pain. This is uh, urethral prolapse and caruncles. Uh, this would be a healthy looking uh, urethra, and these would be abnormal urethras, and you take out the redundancy in standard urologic fashion. Uh, we can have conditions of clitoral priapism causing sexual pain, and this is a medical way of injecting. We have surgical ways of, of uh, eliminating priapism in women and dorsal slit surgery. So here's someone you can't find the clitoris. Uh, and now, uh, because there's pain in here, and these are the foreign bodies that were found inside the, the clitoris. These are keratin pearls, and the dorsal slit surgery reestablishes the, the clitoris. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, we have 147 participants. It's very cool. So thank you for doing that. AUA Office of Education, we love you to death. Thank you for constantly supporting women's sexual health. Faculty, thank you so much for doing a fabulous job. And it's only me who went over, as per usual. Uh, and I think the plan now is to go over uh, uh, questions. So I'm going to do that. And I, I guess the faculty should all come on with video. And uh, yes, there you go. Come on with video and unmute yourself. And the first question is, let me undock it and really read it. Oh, we have lots of questions. So uh, I'll do this with Rachel. I guess this is your question. Does intrauterine device have the same effects as oral contraceptives on vulvar tissue? What do you think the answer is? So no, the data shows that the SHBG levels do not get higher with the hormonal and certainly not with the copper uh, intrauterine devices. So it is a really nice treatment uh, to give women as an option. There's a new FDA approved uh, contraceptive that should be coming out that's an, a gel that goes in the vagina about an hour up to a minute before you have sex. It's an acid that helps kill the sperm. So that's another nice non-hormonal uh, option for our patients. Let me open this up to everybody, including Noel. Uh, uh, do women prefer a male or a female provider taking care of their woman's sexual health? Uh, why don't we, Noel, what do you think the answer would be? I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just off the top of my head, I would say female, but. Ashley, what do you think? I think they care about seeing somebody who cares about their I problems. wanted you to say that. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, they're, yes, first line, a lot of women think that they have to see a woman. Um, but when I was training under you, your passion and enthusiasm and the extent that you took their problem seriously was the most validating experience for them. And it doesn't matter, you know, what generals you have. I mean, that's not the point. Um, so yeah. Rachel. Boy or girl? 
Some of the best men's sexual health providers are women. Uh, we do a great job with treating our male patients for sexual problems because we can empathize and we can counsel and we can show emotional intelligence. And so if you care about uh, uh, women's sexual health the way you do about male sexual health, your confidence and your confidence will show and you can be good at this. So what you're saying is you should be a man or a woman doing this. Just do it. Just do it, people. <laughs> Good answer. Okay, we won't argue with that. All right. How do you cancel women using intravaginal estradiol um, um, in terms of, I can't read the whole sentence, it says who want to be sexual, but I can't read beyond that. But, but so Rachel, you did the, I think so, it's a vaginal so for, for, so when you have a pellet, either a, a vaginal estrogen tablet or an insert, um, or a DHEA suppository that goes in the vagina, you don't have to dose it. They do it, you know, uh, if it's DHEA, it's every night at bedtime. If it's an, uh, an estradiol tablet, it's typically every day for two weeks and then twice a week, and that will be on your slides. When you get into the creams, it becomes variable dosing and the applicator is reusable. They have to wash it. So many of the urologists say, just take a little dab and just rub it on the urethra and it tends to underdose. So I typically say one gram every day for two weeks and then twice a week if you're using the estradiol um, or um, the, um, the synthetic estradiol creams, which I don't love because they contain a lot of chemicals in it that can be irritating to vulvas for my very sensitive patients. I love the inserts because it's easy to do. You set it and forget it. You don't have to mess around with discharge and um, uh, messing up the sheets and women seem to prefer it a lot more. I would also say in terms of in terms of the dosing, uh, you know, you're you're also titrating to effect, right? So if somebody is still showing effects of hormone deficiency and they're using it two times a week, uh, you know, don't limit them to that because that's what the you know some some labeling said, right? If they take it three times a week or every other day, I mean, these are not dangerous medications. And you know, somebody approached me about that once. And said, I, I see the dosing you're putting all these patients on with their estrogen cream. It's crazy. They're using it every other day. And I said to them, you know, if you were treating hypertension, you wouldn't um, just put them on. A, you would treat them to the desired effect of their blood pressure, right? So, so why would you put somebody on something for, uh, you know, the signs of atrophy without titrating to the effect of resolving their atrophy? Um, so excellent point, Rachel. So, or Ashley, <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, I want to uh, ask Lee talk, Rachel, uh, uh, bringing Noel back in. Noel talked all this fabulous stuff about androgens. You spoke about GSM, but you didn't speak anything about androgens in GSM. So androgens in the vagina, you didn't say one word about androgens. DHEA, in the vagina. DHEA, there's an FDA approved product called vaginal DHEA prasterone. The, the name is Intrarosa. It's vaginal DHEA and it works by intracrinology. So when you put it in the vagina, your vagina's enzymes amazingly turn it into estrogen and androgens. And it's a really gorgeous product in the sense of what it does to the tissue. It fixes the vestibule pain. It helps with the GSM pain. I find it works great in women uh, who you could get off birth control pills. I find breastfeeding women, it works fantastic in, and it's adding that androgen component. And so occasionally we'll do a compounded estradiol testosterone, um, but the, the DHEA is an FDA approved product that we do have, did say there's data that shows it decreases recurrent UTIs. 
So, so the the data presented by the AUA on recurrent urinary tract infections spoke of estrogen, didn't speak of androgen, and maybe what we should do is educate our colleagues that really it's the combination that's important. And Dr. Kim, to get you involved, the AUA says give estrogen because it helps recurrent UTIs. You spoke of androgens. Don't you think it should include also androgens? Absolutely, absolutely. It's really the whole story. And again, you have to look at the underlying physiology of what types of receptors do these tissues have? What types of enzymes are being expressed? Uh, they certainly are responsive to both androgens and estrogens. So yes, absolutely. 200%. Right, so, so Rachel, you have to help our colleagues. Okay, next question. If there is not systemic levels of estradiol hormone, why do women get breast tenderness? Who wants to address that? When they so, take uh, local so think, tissue. Yeah, so I think my graph shows that there is a little bit of systemic estrogen increase initially. And, and so you can get some breast tenderness um, is, is really the thing you'll see very, if they're very estrogen deficient, the epithelium is so thin. And as it gets thicker, you get less and less systemic absorption. So if you wanna prove to this woman that there's no systemic absorption, you can draw her blood before she does it and then draw it at, at two weeks or one month and she will show you know, no increase in systemic absorption. Do you have a better answer, Dr. Goldstein? No, I loved your answer, it was perfect. Um, next question. Okay, um, Ashley. Uh, just that's another key point about education, right? So if you say, tell somebody who's about to start one of these vaginal estrogen that they may have breast tenderness, but that will resolve, uh, they won't stop it because of that and they won't be scared of it. Uh, you know, and if you don't explain that to them, then then yes, you have somebody who who you know gets scared and, and discontinues and treatment. And again, breast tenderness does not mean you're developing breast cancer. And if you looked at those scary studies, people who are on estrogen alone had a decreased risk of death from breast cancer. So it's educating people about what do the study, is estrogen in your whole body even scary and dangerous? And I would argue when you look at the studies, no. Um, if you are worried, the vaginal DHEA does not show increase in systemic levels of estrogen or testosterone. And so you can counsel them you know, depending on what you're looking for. So the next question by the same questioner, Dr. Kerr, how do you discuss to treat dyspareunia in women who have had radiation treatment for rectal cancer or cervical cancer, and particularly younger women? This is a really big problem. Anyone want to deal with that? So I think it's that multidisciplinary approach. If it's not a hormone uh, cancer and you can work with their oncologist, get them on um, topical hormone therapy quickly and early. Um, you have to get dilators involved. They have to understand why they're using them. Getting your pelvic floor physical therapist is essential. And also whenever you're working with on oncology patients is you have to say, you know, how much vagina are they removing in that cystectomy? How, you know, what does this pain? I have a patient who's had four cancers two breasts, a fallopian tube, and bladder cancer, and all she cares about is she wants penetration. And so you have to understand with your patients, what are they looking for? I would add that the CO2 fractional laser has been useful in our hands in, in women with radiation treatment uh, for vaginal pain. Uh, it, it, it's fabulous because it's non-hormonal and increases uh, uh, blood flow and tissue strength. Some of the hyaluronic acid moisturizers can be really helpful and they can lather those on and really work, work with them and with dilators as well. Uh, we keep getting more questions. This is good. We have 140 some odd people here. And they're uh, still can, on. They haven't left us yet. Can you share your technique on Botox injections? Who, how much dose and where do you put it? Who wants to talk about that? 
Dr. G, do you want to talk about it? Or you yeah, want so to I'm involved in a clinical trial. So we have a, uh, well, you're, you're involved in a clinical trial too. Ashley, are you involved in this clinical trial? No. So there's amazing. a standardized way to do this. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, once this does become FDA approved, then it will be a standardized uh, strategy. So Rachel, tell us a little bit about it. So what I do with this, so this is a clinical trial we're doing using um, not bot not a different botulinum toxin company, uh, which won't be named, but it works really well uh, also. When I use botulinum toxin, um, I typically use about 100 units. Um, I personally um, divide it into like three cc's or some small number, and then I if it's superficial and it's just at the, the bottom, the five, six, seven o'clock in those superficial transverse perinei muscles, what I'll do is I'll divide each syringe, one cc syringe goes into each spot and I'll inject um, a little bit right up in front of the hymen superficially, you know, 0.2 cc's, I go a little bit deeper, 0.2 cc's, I go behind the hymen, and go in superficial and then a little bit deeper. I use, I believe it's a, a half inch needle. Um, and then- It is you, a half inch needle. What's that? It's 30 gauge half inch, yes. 30 gauge half inch needle. And you do the same on the other side and then you do um, half of the syringe um, superficial right at six o'clock and the other half uh, deeper right at six o'clock. So you kind of go in halfway with the needle and then all the way so in. So it really prevents incontinence and other bad issues and it's really effective. So Miraculous. that um, will become a huge uh, strategy. I hope you learned with that one. Next one, what treatments are there for postmenopausal women with HSDD since Dr. Winters said all of these are for premenopausal women? No, okay. So to correct myself, if I, if I did say that, uh, Testosterone, which is off-label, is has the best data for postmenopausal women, right? So that is where you are taking a woman and looking at, you know, looking at her her testosterone levels and putting her on systemic testosterone to bring her to the physiologic level of a premenopausal woman, uh, and that can or has been shown to improve sexual desire. So, uh, you know, let me clarify that point, and then. You know, in terms of uh, the other therapies, right, bremelanotide and um, flobanserin, uh, these are FDA approved specifically for premenopausal women. They are effective in postmenopausal women, women, without a doubt. Now, that said, you want to address the hormones, I think, first. And then once you've established that, or you can do it as part of a multimodal therapy, uh, but once you've established that, then you can absolutely give these uh, to, to postmenopausal women. And in fact, uh, as, as I learned under uh, the tutelage of Dr. Goldstein, you can give these to men who have HSDD, which definitely happens. Uh, you know, and that's one of the brilliant components of something that's a non-hormonal treatment, uh, is that it is acting primarily in the brain. The fundamental problem is that because the clinical trials did not look at either male cohorts or postmenopausal cohorts, uh, the insurances are not paying for these medications for those people. So that's that's the real problem. It's not that it won't work or you can't give it to them. It's that it's going to be. <coughs> so, so in summary, there are published data on, on the use of these products in uh, postmenopausal <laughs> women. Next question. What is the normal premenopausal level of testosterone in women that are trying to to achieve, and then I can't see the rest of this question. What, what's the, what would you want the premenopause, oh, in trying to achieve 
We are, what are we trying to achieve in premenopausal women with their level of testosterone? I can answer that, but if you want to, anyone else wants to answer it. Nicole, do you, do you have a sense of that? Not clinically. Okay, so the, we use a, uh, I did a trial with a fabulous endocrinologist, Andre Gay. God bless him. Uh, he's not alive anymore, but he was an amazing mentor to me. And he was in Boston. And we did a trial of our nurses in uh, the various hospitals, and we gave them questionnaires. Uh, so we took only those who didn't have a sexual problem. We drew their bloods, sent it to a research lab, the NIH, and we came back with what the values of testosterone are in healthy women. <laughs> and we have them at various ages in premenopause. So if you want to remember this, uh, uh, it's a calculated free testosterone is 0.6 to 0.8 nanograms per deciliter is the official value of what we find in women without sexual dysfunction. So that would be our goal uh, to try to achieve that in women with sexual dysfunction. We typically find women who have sexual dysfunction have very low values of calculator free T, way below 0.6 to 0.8. Next question, why is phlebotrin approved only for premenopausal women? Do we use it in women who are stable in SSRI or SNRI? Ashley, that would be you. Uh, so I guess we addressed the part about uh, postmenopausal women uh, before. Uh, you definitely can use it in other people, just wasn't you know, FDA approved with that indication. And uh, you can definitely use it in people who are taking uh, SSRIs and, and SNRIs as well. Um, well, arguably, and, arguably, SSRIs improve mood, but SSRIs have the propensity to cause sexual problems. So you can have your cake and eat it by having a person continue their mood medicine and, and dispel their side effect by taking a drug like phlebantrin. Phlebantrin has data to show that SSRI and SNRI use concomitantly with phlebantrin does not cause safety side effects. And that's a very important. Uh, Dr. Goldstein, question. in your clinical experience, do you think these drugs are going to be useful in PSSD? Ah, so you're, are you talking PSSD like boys or PSSD girls? And why don't you tell us what PSSD is? So for those who are not familiar. SSRI sexual dysfunction. Okay, so uh, so there are people who take uh, uh, these medications, mood medicines, and uh, they get side effects while on it. And then when they get off it, instead of it returning their sexual function, their sexual function stays low. Uh, and that's what ostensibly PSSD is. So uh, uh, while this is a tiny bit out of the range here, because that's typically a bit, uh, uh, PSSD is a big problem. And we have used uh, off-label agents that Dr. Winter has described in such patients. We also use them in men with finasteride. Uh, issues, not, not not to exclusively limit men with low interest to PSSD, but th that term is called PFS, post-finasteride syndrome, and that's another conversation for another time. And our very, uh, very, oops, you, you can talk, please. I'm talking over you. <laughs> uh, what was not mentioned was uh, that additional side effects of uh, phlebanserin uh, can be Im improved sleep and weight loss. So, uh, you know, it's always a nice thing to be able to mention those side effects uh, to patients because uh, they're they're usually uh, desirable. Yes. So uh, for those still on the phone uh, or on the phone, for those still on the meeting, that was a very important thing that Dr. Winter said. Uh, there are fabulous data published, and I was an author, uh, that weight loss is a predictable outcome of phlebanserin use and uh, improved sleep is a predictable outcome 
of phlebanterin use. Remember, phlebanterin is what's called MSAA. That's the class it's in. It's multifunctional serotonergic agonist and antagonist. And these agents, beyond sexuality improvement, are also weight loss and sleep aids. So that's a very cool side effect or, or advantage or benefit of a serotonergic drug. Final, final question. You mentioned FOD encouraging after mid-urethral slings. Uh-oh. As a specialty, we've done thousands of these. How often is what we're doing surgically resulting in FOD? Wow. Uh, who's this person? Let me see. Uh, Dr. Whalen, uh, we have written a paper. If you would contact me, I will give you all the information we have. We did a meta-analysis of all the published articles of women who received slings who filled out uh, questionnaires like FSFIs before and after the mid-urethral sling surgery. And guess what? There is reduced orgasm function in women who have mid-urethral slings in likely part because it is possible that we injure appropriate, uh, we injure very important nerves in the area. And, and I would love to speak to you off, offline about this and we can all learn from this. Uh, I think this is something we have to reckon with, that some of the treatments the we do is, for incontinence. Yes, please. The point is not to never do sling surgery. It's about informed consent, right? When you, if you 100%. never ask a woman if she can have an orgasm, then how do you know you're not going to interfere with her orgasm mechanism? Many women enjoy anterior vaginal wall stimulation because of that PSA tissue that Dr. Goldstein talked about, just like men enjoy um, a prostate stimulation. And so you have to ask, if you don't ask, you you don't know and then if you put that sling in and it damaged that tissue she might not be too happy but she'll never bring it up because why would you want to hear about her orgasm all right we are sort of over the limits of the time so we want to respect everybody's time we're going to ask each faculty member to summarize your thoughts about urologic involvement in women's sexual health we'll start with dr kim I think the main message is that urologists definitely have an active role in this. Uh, you're not just taking care of urinary issues. Uh, sexual function is a very important component of overall health. And uh, so there you go. Please, please. Dr. Get Winter, what are your thoughts? Sex is great. We're experts in sex. Uh, you know, we, I mean, I don't, I don't want to steal Rachel's thunder, but you know, we, we are experts on the penis and the clitoris is a homologous organ. Uh, and so we, we are experts in the clitoris as well. Uh, not that that's the only aspect of female sexual function. And uh, it's a huge part. It's a huge part because if we're dealing with women's urinary tracts, um, you know, the, the, the sexual organs are, are intimately and intrinsically and inherently related and managing one well is, is critical to managing the other well, right? I mean, like we were saying, uh, perceived bladder pain, perceived urethral pain can be related to hormonal deficiencies and being competent in that really elevates your practice. And it's so easy and it's so common and it's so uh, impactful to the patient if you can be facile with just basics of providing care, uh, you know, particularly, I think particularly with topical hormones, uh, it's so easy to do. Dr. Rubin. Sexual health is just health. As a board certified urologist, you are trained to take care of women and men. You don't just take out male kidneys. You don't just take out female bladders. You make a choice. You are trained to take care of men and women. And if urologists are trained to be sexual health experts, then if you only treat men, you make a choice 
to leave out the female uh, component there. And so it takes two to tango and uh, we should be taking care of all genders. We should champion it. And I'm so grateful for the AUA for having us. And a final, final comment. All the faculty, one, two, three. Thank you, AUA Office of Education. Thank you very much. Anyone wants to reach us, call our emails. Uh, uh, we will be very happy to speak. Aaron and Sarah, thank you again and again and again. Everybody have a great evening. Thank you.